Alexander Hamilton was the most controversial and polarizing of all the founding fathers. He was an absolute genius. His influence on American history cannot be overstated. A recent book written by Andrew Perwancher suggests that Hamilton was Jewish. In this class, we look at some of Perwancher's arguments, we discuss some of Hamilton's interactions and connections with the Jewish community, and we'll weigh in on this controversy. Was Alexander Hamilton Jewish? As always, we hope you like this podcast. Please like and share it, and even better, please leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Math. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're going to get started. I want to thank you all for coming. My kids dared me to come and said, you're teaching about, okay, was Alexander Hamilton Jewish? Was Alexander, I mean, so many people have been asking me this since we started posting this, you know, the flyer, is Alexander Hamilton Jewish? And everyone's been asking me, so Rabbi, is Alexander Hamilton Jewish? So like my kids dare me, get in, you know, start the class, no, and then leave. Yeah, right? no. So obviously it's going to be more nuanced than that. They said like, run it like a whole series of all the presidents. Was, you know, William Henry Harrison Jewish? No. You know, next. Right? So, um... Thank you all for joining. Um, this is a, a, a very interesting topic and one that I find fascinating. Uh, anytime that there's any kind of convergence between Judaism and American history, you always got my attention. And, um, and that's, there you go. There you go. So July 12th, 1804, as Alexander Hamilton lays dying um, from the bullet provided by Vice President Aaron Burr, Hamilton calls for a minister to give him his final rites, give him communion, which in and of itself, not surprising. What's interesting is the paper, the Daily Advertiser newspaper wrote of Hamilton that by receiving in attestation of his faith the, sa- the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he has not left the world to doubt of his faith. And if you think about it, by implication, that's a surprising observation that a newspaper would make. The newspaper is saying, don't worry, we now know Hamilton's faith. Hamilton does receive and did receive communion as he lay dying. By inference, we can detect, well, that must have been unusual. Why is the paper writing that? It must be by inference, this was somewhat of a surprise. Indeed... What was also surprising is that when the minister who came initially on Hamilton's request as he lay dying, and he calls for a minister to you know, uh, uh, you know, give, provide him with communion, the minister initially refused. He said, I'm not going to do it. For two reasons. Number one, he felt that dueling was immoral and inappropriate. We're not going to provide the holy sacrament for you know, a sinner. They worked that one out. But the other reason was that as Hamilton lay dying, you know, maybe 50 years old, he had never received communion ever in his life. Which is very strange. If Hamilton was a good, devout Christian, you know, why does he... And that's why the minister wasn't so comfortable offering him communion, offering him the last rites. You haven't been a good, faithful Christian your whole life. You know, now all of a sudden, as you have hours to live, he wasn't so sure, I'm not going to get... And they worked it out, and they, they... You know, people pressured him, look, it's a dying man's last wish. So he did it. But we see from Hamilton's last few moments on earth, his religion isn't so clear. He certainly wasn't a devout Christian his whole life. What was he? It must be pointed out in all fairness. Hamilton, and the topic of tonight's lecture is, was Hamilton Jewish? Hamilton definitely, what, what is not up for debate is, he never professed, never claimed, and never even remotely alluded through his entire life on any level that he was Jewish. He never went to synagogue, he didn't daven with a minion, he didn't put on, t- that's for sure. There's no question about it. Um, not only that, his wife Eliza, Eliza Schuyler, was, a, was indeed a devout Christian, but Hamilton was not. Is that an indicator that he was Jewish? Tonight we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at his background. We're going to look at, in general, some of Hamilton's interesting Jewish connections. And we'll get to shortly his origins. Was there, is there a possibility that he was Jewish? 
We're going to rely on a couple of books, primarily for, in terms of understanding Hamilton's background and was he Jewish. Really, the, the spark for tonight's discussion comes from this book by Andrew Porwancher, The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he argues his theory, he does believe that Hamilton was Jewish. Uh, those who want, you know, for further reading, you know, the, the popular classic work on Hamilton is, you know, Ron Chernow's biography, 2004. Who here, I, I asked this earlier before the class started, show of hands, who saw Hamilton the musical? Okay, it's based on this book. Raise your hands if you didn't see Hamilton the musical. All right, so is it sacrilegious for me to go ahead and give the class even though I didn't see them? I don't know. You could, I did see, I watched for like a minute, I watched one of the, like a three minute, um, one of the songs, and it was almost like it was the song, the song that's called Alexander Hamilton. Then I actually was surprised, it was very quick, and I don't know if anyone, again, I know the plot, I mean, I'm assuming the plot is about his life, so I know how it ends. But, uh, but that musical, the, the, the lyrics actually, to my guess, seemed pretty on spot, but they were very quick allusions to different episodes in, um, in Hamilton's life. There is an interesting book, which I don't recommend, but it's a friend of mine recommended, recommended it, called Hamilton's Curse. It's sort of a response to Chernow's biography, if you kind of want to counter uh, you know, the point and the counterpoint. So this is an interesting reading. And indeed, Alexander Hamilton is um, by far, of all the founding fathers, is the most polarizing figure. Paul Johnson, one of my favorite historians, he argues that of all the founding fathers, and you're dealing with men of cheap, brilliant people, Ben Franklin, Adams, Thomas Jefferson. He says, of all the founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton is the only one who can be clearly called a pure, absolute genius. Hamilton was an absolutely you know, startling person. His, um, his brilliance is uh, remarkable. He was a polarizing figure. One of my favorite remarks, Woodrow Wilson would write about Alexander Hamilton. He would write that, where's my quote? He said that Hamilton was a great man, but not a great American, which is very interesting. For those of us, we'll take a few moments, we'll, we'll go through some of, of Hamilton's, um, what he did for the country. If Washington is the father of the country, and Madison is the father of the Constitution, Jefferson is the father of the Declaration of Independence, Alexander Hamilton is the father of the United States government. There is no one figure in all of American history who did more to turn the United States government into what it is today and to get it off the ground than was, than was Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton, and so as I mentioned, we're going to talk first about some of his many Jewish connections, kind of working backwards through his life starting the end of his life and working backwards, getting us to his birth, which is naturally when we talk about was Alexander Hamilton Jewish, really what we're asking is, you, for, for those who are unaffiliated, un, uninitiated, you can be Jewish in one of two ways. Either you convert, to the best of my mind, Hamilton never converted, or his mother was Jewish. And that's really going to be the question. And do we have evidence? Are there going to be pieces along the way uh, as we go through some of his Jewish connections? But then we'll then talk about his Jewish uh, or his, his origins, his birth. We'll talk about what my feelings are. And then if time permitting, maybe we'll talk about some, in general, some reflections on some of the lessons, the total lessons that I've always taken away from Hamilton's life. Of all the founding fathers, the great leaders, beginning 1776 and on, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, they all used or were involved at some point in their lives either with anti-Semitic rhetoric or some type of anti-Semitic behavior of sorts. Now, I don't believe any of them were out-and-out anti-Semites. They probably could be best accused as the casual anti-Semitism, which was typical of the late 1700s and early 1800s. Not to excuse it, but it's a reality. The language that they used um, that would maybe, you know, not as bad as a Kanye West. Let's be, you know, but... Um, but clearly, all of them at some point in their lives either used an anti-Semitic uh, phraseology, terminology. Madison sacked one of his diplomats because he was a Jew. You know, they all were to some degree had some kind of anti-Semitic 
backgrounds. The notable exceptions are George Washington, who, to the best of my historical knowledge, you know, only spoke very highly of the Jew, of, of Jewish people and the Jews, although it should be. Now, we, we gave a class about a year ago about George Washington and the Jews, and one of the things that we noted is, you know, he's, he did have good and positive relationships with the Jewish community. However, it should be noted there were few and far between. Washington did not grow up davening in a shtibel. He did not go, he was not particularly you know, close with the Jewish community, but to whatever degree he had Jewish connections, you know, he doesn't and never had, again, to my mind, to my knowledge, any of those anti-Semitic remarks, casual anti-Semitism that some of the other founders may have had. And the other real notable exception is, of course, Alexander ha Hamilton, the topic, um, you know, of tonight's discussion. To our historical knowledge, never used any anti-Semitic language. And as we're going to see, if anything, he was a, a real defender of Jews. He had a very positive relationship with the Jewish community. Spoke very highly of them. And unlike Washington, he interacted with Jews on a very regular basis. He had a lot of Jewish connections. After Hamilton, you know, kind of the last phase of his life, he was living as a private, and just as a couple of examples of some of his Jewish connections, which are noteworthy, fascinating. The end of his life, you know, the last sort of last stage of his career, he's no longer the Secretary of the Treasury. He becomes a private citizen, um, lives in New York as an attorney, which right there is 70% chance of being Jewish. Just, you know, if you live in New York and you're an attorney, no, right? He was a prominent attorney in, in New York, and there was a fast, he had many Jewish clients. And one of the fascinating things about, about Hamilton, one of the remarkable things about Hamilton, is just how much he left behind. Just the amount of sheer writing that he wrote, you know, tens of thousands of pages, you know, a tremendous amount of original source material, whereas some of the other founding fathers, it's few and far between. Hamilton, there is, I mean, it'll take a lifetime to read all of his stuff. He had many, many Jewish clients, and some of his cases that he dealt with, some of his clients who were Jewish were fascinating, but one of the, the cases that really, uh, I, I think, jumps off the page and is really one of the um, more interesting cases involves a fellow in 1794, a Frenchman named Louis Lejeune. Louis Lejeune, who's a Frenchman, comes to New York in 1794. He's a merchant. He, he comes to New York City with a, you know, a shipload of cotton and indigo that he wants to sell. And he contracts out in New York with a couple of agents who were going to contract out for him. They were going to be his agents. They would sell his indigo and his cotton. These two men were named somebody and somebody else. Isaac Governor and Peter Kimball. Not Jewish. Nor was Louis Lejeune. Neither of them are Jewish. Kimball and, and, Govern and Governor, they go ahead, they're prominent businessmen in New York City. And they sign into contract, they're going to go ahead and sell this guy Lejeune's indigo and cotton. And they go ahead and they hire, they get a boat, and they set sail. They have, their, they have in turn their agents who go to set sail back on the continent, back to Europe. On board that boat, acting as their agent, was a fellow named Isaac Gomez. Now, Gomez, to you and me, doesn't sound like a very Jewish name, now does it? It should be noted, in the United States of America at this time, quick snapshot of what the American Jewish community looked like. Jewish community in North America begins in 1654, in the United States of America. 1654, September, I think, 20th, 1654. One of the reasons, why, again, why I love American history. Like, there's no mythology, there's no questions about the origin story. We know exactly when the Jewish community starts. 1654, 21, or I forget, 23, Jewish families get off the boat. Um, these are escapees. These are people who are refugees more from, the, from Recife, Brazil, fleeing from the long arm of the Spanish Inquisition, and they land in Manhattan. And so begins the Jewish community. And by the time the American Revolution, by the time the 1800s, let's say, roll around, figure there are 2,500 Jews in North America. The mother congregation, kind of the mothership, the main central place being New York City, and Sheriff Israel, the first Jewish congregation, the first shul, still exists today 
in, in New York, Sherith Israel, the oldest synagogue in North America. Isaac Gomez at, point, at one point, I believe, was actually the, the president of, uh, of Sherith Israel. Never trust the president of a synagogue. Let me know. Isaac Gomez, he was a, a merchant. He's sent to go ahead and, and be the agent on this boat. And they go to various ports in Europe to try to sell Lejeune's cotton and indigo. And they have a hard time. He has a hard time. The market conditions just aren't there. People aren't looking to buy cotton. The market is flooded with indigo. No one wants to go ahead and buy the, you know, the product. And he returns back you know, with, with the indigo and cotton. And it's a loss. It was a big loss. And Lejeune says, well, look, Kimball and Gouverneur, you're responsible. You are the ones who paid for it. You've got to pay me for it. And the loss is yours. Gouverneur and Kimball say, no, no, no. The reason why it didn't sell was because it was an inferior product. You sold me defective goods. And they entered into a lawsuit. They sue one another. And it goes to court. I forget who wins. They appeal. Goes to the higher court. Appeal, appeal. And it becomes a real long, protracted litigation for years between Lejeune and Gouverneur and, and uh, Kimball. It eventually goes to New York, the New York State Supreme Court. Alexander Hamilton is the attorney for Lejeune. As a weird twist of fate, but this was something that was not uncommon, he had co-counsel. He had an attorney working together with him. Guess what his name was? Aaron Burr. They worked on many cases together. Remarkable. But in any event, Hamilton is the lead attorney. And they go and they argue that, you know, the, the, the reason why the merchandise, the indigo, the cotton didn't sell, bad market conditions. And Kimball and Gouverneur, you're responsible to pay. They argue no defective goods. They hire as their attorney, Governor Morris, who's actually a signer of the, of the uh, I think he's a signer of the Declaration, but certainly he's the, the, the author, the, the preamble of the Constitution. He is the attorney for the other guy. This is a real football game, right? They're going back and forth. It's a technical argument, whatever they're arguing about. The end, giving the final arguments. Hamilton gives his final argument, and then Governor Morris gives his final argument. He says the lead witness that was backing the original guy, I, uh, the original guy Lejeune, that guy Isaac Gomez is a Jew. You can't trust a Jew. Jew's testimony is inadmissible in court. I rest your case, Your Honor. After hearing that, Hamilton asked the judge, he says, can I, have, can I have a rebuttal? Can I come back tomorrow to respond to that? The judge says yes. Here's what Hamilton responds. Large crowd, uh, large crowd gathered in the court. Referencing Morris's attack on the Jews, Hamilton asked the court, has he forgotten what this race once, what, once were when under immediate government of God himself, they were selected as the witnesses of his miracles and charged with the spirit of prophecy? Hamilton moved from a discussion of the Jews and he talks about he decried how as remnants of a scattered tribes, adherents of Judaism were degraded, persecuted, reviled subjects of Rome, an empire that oppressed the Jews in all her restless power and pride and pagan pomp. Roman rule, rule had left Jewry an isolated tribute, uh, isolated tribute, a friendless people. And he went on, were not the witnesses of that pure, holy, happy and heaven improved faith. And he went on, be the, uh, be the injured party, Jew or Gentile, or Christian or pagan, foreign or native, she clothes him with her mantle, so I meant Lady Justice, in whose presence all differences of faith or births, of passion or prejudices, are all called to acknowledge and revere her supremacy, Lady Justice. And he argues so eloquently, first of all, speaking eloquently about the Jewish people, and arguing strenuously that to reject someone's testimony simply because he's Jewish, you know, you know that, that's an outrage, and that should, you know, rattle all of us. It should be noted that in many states, although, you know, we have the in our First Amendment rights, you know, the free exercise clause and the like, but on the state levels, Jews were not necessarily, Jews were not necessarily admissible to hold office or to be witnesses in court. And I believe as late as 1850-something or other, Georgia would not allow Jews to testify in court. Do they today? Yes, they do, thank God. <laughs> 
And it's just a remarkable, you know, of all the founding fathers, none of them wrote such a powerful, I mean, Washington, aside with his famous letter to the Jews, but just a powerful response, so strident, arguing against anti-Semitism. Again, one of his uh, remarkable Jewish connections. As Secretary of Treasury under Washington, as we mentioned, there is no one as influential in terms of starting the, the government of the United States when the country was first founded. Um, the country was basically bankrupt from the revolution. And that was what Washington you know, notices a, a, immediately. Hamilton issues, again, if you don't know this, I'm sending you all back to AP American history. He issues several reports that really shape the future of the United States of America. First, he, he, his first report is on public credit. Um, he, he writes a report about taxes. His, he goes ahead and he establishes a bank. He establishes, he writes a report about the need for a mint. And famously, his report on manufacturers. Many, he basically argues for a capitalistic society, free trade, manufacturing, an industrial society. And that put him at tremendous loggerheads with Thomas Jefferson, who would be his lifelong rival. Jefferson's vision of the world, of the country, would be a government that was hands-off, that was very uninvolved in, you know, the affairs. His vision was an agrarian society, a society where everyone lived on their farm and worked by themselves with the sweat of their own brow. Jefferson was a slave owner, never planted a tree in his life, probably. Uh, easy for him to say. But that was his vision. And they were polar opposites. Um, Hamilton's vision was for a society of merchants, capitalism, businessmen, which one can well imagine opened himself up to exposure of people accusing him of being a Jew lover. All those Jew, Jews typically of being, being merchants, being a very Jewish profession, being tradesmen, um, being importers and exporters, you know, people accused Hamilton of being in, in league with Jews and being a Jew. In fact, one remarkable quote, um, this is in the New York Journal. It condemned those Christians who were poised to profit off the inflated bonds for acting like Jews. And our Christians who tampered with the stress of their fellow soldiers. Let me back up here. What happened was a very interesting thing. One of the things that, that Hamilton advocated for, a fascinating thing to think about, is soldiers of the revolution were issued bonds, payment. But the problem is it was all worthless because the government was functionally bankrupt. So what many, many soldiers did was they sold their bonds, their paper money, to different investors, speculators, who would buy them at 10 cents on the dollar. The question was, the government starts, the, the, as the, you know, the United States becomes a government, how much of a, you know, what should we do with these bonds that, the, that we paid our soldiers? And many argued is that we should go ahead and repay these soldiers for their hard work. Now that Hamilton's gone ahead and he's resurrected the treasury, he's resurrected the dollar, you know, now these soldiers are getting ripped off. Because those speculators who bought those bonds, 10 cents on the dollar, now they, their, their bonds are actually fully valued. And many had argued that we should go pay back those soldiers the original value. Hamilton felt that that was not a good idea for two reasons. First of all, he thought it would be impossible to figure out you know, the original holders of those bonds. And number two, he felt that goes against capitalism. You know, that soldier made a choice to sell his bond at 10 cents on the dollar. The speculator made a choice to buy it on 10 cents on the dollar on the hopes that it went, would go up. That's fundamentally to go ahead and to reward the guy who sold his thing because he didn't have faith in the United States government. He shouldn't be rewarded for that. And Hamilton won. But he was, this was again one of these areas where he was accused of being a Jew lover. In our Christians who tampered with the distress of their fellow soldiers, avarice was the homogenous quality of their souls. Shakespeare's Jew, the character of vigorous imagination, is surpassed in avarice by the real characters of these Christians. Again, a reference to you know, Shylock the Jew and accusing Hamilton of you know, that classic Jewish trope, anti-Semitic trope of um, you know, trying to, to rip people off. Wash. Hamilton becomes the Secretary of Treasury, the founding of the government, because he had a deep relationship with Washington. If you recall your American history, Hamilton started off as 
Washington's aide-de-camp, his ADC, his right-hand man, Washington as general, General Washington was inundated. He was obviously the general of the, of the army, but he was functionally the head of state, practically. And the amount of paperwork he had to deal with was overwhelming. And he used Hamilton to be his spokesman. Almost all the letters that were issued by Washington were actually not issued by Washington. They were written by Hamilton. And Hamilton was his most influential advisor when, when Washington was a general. It's a remarkable story. One of his Jewish, one of Hamilton's Jewish connections was as he was, you know, helping Washington 1780 up in West Point when they were going to go ahead and rendezvous to see the West Point, which was a fort. And they wanted to see how strong it was. You know, what were its fortifications like? Who was the administer? Who was in charge of the fort of West Point at, in 1780? None other than... Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, who was a good guy at the time, who has obviously become a traitor. Who was Benedict Arnold's aide-de-camp? Who was Benedict Arnold's right-hand man? It was a fellow named David Franks, who was a Jew. He was Jewish. And he was there with Hamilton as, you know, Hamilton and Washington, you know, emerge and, you know, come to West Point. He's there together. And, you know, if you know the story... Arnold's able to slip out the back door. A crazy, remarkable story. But and immediately he's discovered as being a Benedict, Benedict Arnold is discovered as being a Benedict Arnold. And immediately everyone suspects, well, who else is a traitor? It's got to be that Franks was a traitor as well. And he was immediately suspect, suspected of being, you know, in league with Benedict Arnold. Franks, you know, insisted that he had nothing to do with Benedict Arnold's plot. And he demanded, and Hamilton and Washington approved, interesting, Franks demanded a full court, court uh, excuse me, a full court-martial, easy for you to say, a, a full court-martial to go ahead and exonerate himself, which he was, and he was, uh, you know, found completely innocent. But again, you, we see Hamilton's connections and sympathy for Jews. But the fact just because Hamilton, as we see, if you go through his career, you know, he wasn't an anti-Semite. He was kind to Jews. And yes, was that anomalous for his times? For sure. Does that make him Jewish? No. no. Is it potential evidence that maybe he was a Jew? Maybe. Possibly. But ultimately, as we said, what's really going to roll out, what's really going to come down to was Hamilton's mother is Jew- Jewish. Question is, what was his origin story? It's remarkable. As we mentioned, Hamilton left so much writing about his life, his career as ADC to Washington, Secretary of State, as a general, private life as a lawyer. He left virtually nothing. He wrote very, very little about his childhood. His mother was a woman named Rachel Fawcett. She was definitely born not Jewish. There is no question that Rachel Fawcett was not born Jewish. She was born on the island of St. Croix, Croix, which is right now the U.S. Virgin Islands. That's where she was born, in the Caribbean. The Leeward Islands in the Caribbean was an important point. In the 1700s, really even in the 1600s, were sugar islands. These were islands, white gold. They grew sugar. Sugar was a tremendously valuable product in the 1600s and 1700s. Matter of fact... Poor Wancher writes, I believe in his book, I think it's him or Chernow writes, and I believe this is true, I believe it's at the end of the French and Indian War, when France and Great Britain need to come to some kind of resolution to that war, France, when they're going through the different negotiations, they were offered, they had to decide, what did they want? Did they want all of Canada or the small island of, I believe, Granada, which was a sugar island? They went with Granada because the sugar was worth more than the entire Canada. A, sorry, maple syrup lovers. No, we love you all, our Canadian friends. But, come on, would you rather an island in the Caribbean or the frozen tundra? And, but it's just remarkable. They were, it was a very, very valuable area. And there were lots of merchants living on these islands in the sugar trade. However, should be noted, the predominant race on these sugar islands were, of course, slaves who were the ones who were backbreaking, toiling the land. But, um, you know, that's for a different story. She's born in St. Croix. She marries, while living on St. Croix, a fellow named Johann Michael Levine. Levine. 
The question is, there's no questions I mentioned that Fawcett was not Jewish by birth. What's interesting is, was this guy, Johann Levine, was he Jewish? Now, the name like Levine, you've got to wonder. Now, Hamilton's grandson would write that indeed this fellow, Michael, Johann Michael Levine, was Jewish. His own grandson would write, that's what his, you know, that he was Jewish. As you point out, Levine's very Jewish name. He was a merchant. As we pointed out earlier, being a merchant, import, export, very Jewish trade as well, a point that Perwancher makes. And as we mentioned, you know, the Jews had made it, had left back up a little bit. In 1492, the Jews are all expelled from Spain. Where did they go? A lot of different areas. We've had several classes on that. One of the places that they went was to Holland. And from Holland and the Netherlands, they would go to Brazil. Another place that they went were to a lot of these islands in the Caribbean. The Jewish islands in the Caribbean, the late 1600s and the 1700s, were very, very Jewishly populated. St. Croix may have been 20% Jewish, at least of the free population. May have been 20% Jewish. Right there would tell you the odds of this guy, Michael, Michael, Johan Michael Levine, being Jewish. You know, it's about a 20% chance, just statistically speaking. They have a son together, this Levine and Rachel Fawcett. His name is Peter. Peter was never baptized as a child. Very interesting. It wouldn't be until he was an adult that he would be baptized. Remarkable. However, this fellow Levine was a creep. And he didn't, they, they had shalom bias issues. They didn't, he didn't get along with his wife, uh, Rachel Fawcett. At one point, you know, this is what you do when you don't get along with your wife. What do you do? You have her in prison. And she sat in jail for a couple months. Penina, if you're listening, I have... No, no. <laughs> God forbid. And he has her in prison. He has her, he has her in prison. Claims that she was an adulteress. Eventually, after she gets out of, out of prison, Rachel Fawcett says, Shalom, I'm out of here. And she flees to the island of Nevis, which is a tiny island about 150 miles south of the, of the Virgin Islands. And it's where she, when she's on Nevis... She goes ahead and she meets a fellow named James Hamilton. And they live together. They are not married. At this point, Rachel Fawcett is still halachically, she writes, she's still legally married to Johann Michael Levine. But she lives together with this guy, James Hamilton, who is, again, no question, he is not Jewish. Ham- James Hamilton, who's a Scottish person of actually interesting potential noble uh, origins. They have two children together. One named James Jr. The other, Alexander. Alexander Hamilton was a bastard. He was born out of wedlock, illegitimate. And that would be something that would haunt him his entire life. The psychoanalysts would tell you part of what drove Hamilton to be a successful person, what gave him his ambition, was to sort of as a, I guess, a psychological response to the fact that he was illegitimate. He came from nowhere. He was a bastard. And he, was, he would always struggle with that. And it's probably why he didn't really write all that much, especially when we consider how much he wrote about his adult life, why we have such a paucity of information about his youth, was because it wasn't very respectable as a, as a child. Nevis had, had, a, uh, had a sizable... I, I should take that back. Saint, yeah, Nevis had a smaller Jewish community. No, Nevis, I believe, had a bigger Jewish community. But he also had a Jewish community. I think St. Croix was smaller than Nevis. While on Nevis, Hamilton, oddly enough, goes to school. But where he went to school is remarkable. He went to school as a child at the local cheder, at the local Jewish school. He learned Hebrew. As an adult, Hamilton was able to recite very proudly the Aseris Adibros, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He could recite it by heart in Hebrew. He grew up, he definitely went, this is, seems to be a, you know, a pretty well uh, accepted fact. He went to Cheder. He went to a Jewish school. When he's 11 years old, his mom, Rachel, moves back to St. Croix. And his father, James, kind of leaves the scene. James, James Sr. was never really very involved dad. And he's kind of a single, you know, raised by a single mom. And living in St. Croix, living on the margins of society. When his mom is, when he's 13, both him and his mom come down with some illness, not clear what. They become violently ill. His mom dies. He's now an orphan, functionally. 
13, living on some you know, corner of the world in the middle of nowhere on his own. At that point, it's clear his Jewish connection ends. His whatever potential Jewish identity at that point ends. He's first raised by a distant cousin who ends up committing suicide a few months, a few weeks later. And then his, in the mercy of some local businessman takes him under his wings. And the, really the story of how Hamilton get, becomes Hamilton is when he's 17 years old, a, ha- a, a terrible hurricane strikes St. Croix. And Hamilton wrote um, kind of a newspaper, newspaper article describing how intense this hurricane was. The article was amazing. It was clearly the marks of someone with literary genius. And people on the island probably had already known who Hamilton was and discovered and recognized, you know, this kid was talented. But after that article, when he's 17 years old, people realized this kid is really special. He's really talented. And the community really pitched together and sent him off to King's College in New York and paid for him to go to college. King's College, after the American Revolution, King's College named for King George, well, that name would no longer do after the American Revolution. They had to change its name to, anybody? Columbia. Columbia was so He went to Columbia, my dad's alma mater, which ironically is now pretty anti-Semitic college. Was that... Actually, not so much. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Oh, we may, you know what? Actually, well, maybe let's fast forward. We'll, we'll talk about that point, Phyllis. It's a fascinating thing. When, when uh, there, were, weren't, there were hardly any Jews there. They did have a Jewish a definite Jewish student in the 1770s. Interesting is that when Hamilton, um, after the war, he was actually influential in getting on Columbia. He became one of uh, he became uh, one of Columbia University's. Um, I think his board, the board of regents or something like that. And he actually was instrumental in getting on, on Columbia, the new Columbia University, also on their board. One Gerson Satius. Garrison Mendes Seishis is the most significant Jew during the American Revolution. He was the Chazan. There were no rabbis back then in the United States. There were no rabbis. The first rabbi wouldn't come to the United States until 1840. The communities were led by laymen who were, I guess you would call them religious figureheads. They were called the Chazan. The Chazan nowadays being the cantor. So these were figureheads. Garrison Seishis was the Chazan of Sherith Israel. And he actually would end up being on the board of regents of Columbia University, all again because of Hamilton. Again, interesting, a very remarkable connection, again, Jewish connection. So that's where he is. And that's the story of his, that's really what we know about his background. So was he Jewish? Which is why everyone came here tonight. The question is going to really hinge, as we mentioned. Well, we know Rachel Fawcett was not Jewish by birth. The question asked by Andrew Perwancher is, okay, but was Michael Johann Levine Jewish? He argues, based on all that information, you know, most likely, yes. A name like Levine, this was a Jewish area. He was a merchant. Look at their first child, Peter, never got baptized. And if you look at all of Andrew of Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton, excuse me, all of his Jewish connections and his positivity, wouldn't it stand to reason that Levine was Jewish? Not only that, not only that, here you got a guy named Levine. He marries someone who's not Jewish. Now, can a, not, can a Jew marry a non-Jewish woman? Not unlo- you know, that would be against Jewish law. Suggests poor Wancher, well, perhaps... What, would ha- what happened was when Levine and Fawcett got married, Fawcett converted. She did a proper garris, a conversion. That would explain everything. Why does Hamilton go to a cheder, go to a Jewish school? You know there's a, a halacha, there's a Jewish law. You're not allowed to accept, you're not allowed to teach Torah to a non-Jew. How could that cheder have accepted Alexander Hamilton as a, as a student in their school? If we argue, if Rachel Fawcett, when she married um, Levine, if she did, if she converted, she becomes Jewish. Her kid, Peter, Le- Peter Levine, doesn't get baptized, obviously, because he's Jewish. And then when Fawcett runs away and kind of leaves that marriage and has two other kids, well, what happens to those two children? 
Are they Jewish? The answer is 100%. If she converted, it doesn't matter that she had children out of wedlock. You, once you become a Jew, once a Jew, always a Jew. Once you convert, there's no backseas. There's no way out. And suggests Pelancher that that's what he suspects happened. This would explain his Hamilton sympathy for the Jews throughout his adult life. It would explain why his brother Peter never got, gets, only gets baptized later as an adult. Maybe Peter has to convert to Christianity. Um, would explain why he never affiliated and why it wasn't so simple how we started tonight's discussion when Hamilton is lying on his deathbed. The minister says, I'm not going to give you communion. Where have you been all these years? You haven't been a practicing Christian. And although what we do know for sure is that Hamilton was certainly not a practicing Jew, but this would explain his ambivalence to Christianity because he knew growing up he knew what, his, what his origin was. So says Andrew Perwancher. That's his argument. What do you think? I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what most scholars think. Most scholars say that's a cute argument, but highly doubtful. Why? Should be noted, Perwancher himself says, he doesn't, he's not saying this definitively. Perwancher says, I think I read, there was, there was, he actually got a lot of sharp criticism um, for, his, for his work. And in reply to one of the articles that I read, he explained, he said, and he's right, he's right. He's, in the book never says, he's definitively claiming, you know, I hereby declare Hamilton was Jewish. He's saying that there's a lot of evidence that would suggest it. And Perwancher says, if I was a betting man, I would say the answer is yes. However, I don't really think his argument is good. I want to start with one thing. Do you think, was Levine Jewish? I happen to think the answer to that is probably was. I think most scholars, now it's divided. Many scholars don't think Levine was Jewish. But it's very, very compelling. A name like Levine in a Jewish area, I mean, and, you know, would explain why he went to, now why he went to Cheder could be a different thing. People say just because Levine was Jewish, do we therefore jump to the next step that Rachel Fawcett converted when marrying Levine. That's really the million dollar question. I think that's huge speculation personally. Huge speculation. There's no proof that he converted. You know, the fact that he was enrolled in a cheder, the fact that he was enrolled by a Jew, in a Jewish school, Perwancher suggests it's smoking gun evidence, or I don't know, smoking gun, but that's real compelling evidence. No cheder, no Jewish school would accept a non-Jew, a non-Jewish kid, must be that Fawcett converted. I say, slow down. If Levine was Jewish and Fawcett was not Jewish, is Hamilton Jewish? Halachically, the answer is no. Judaism we fo follows, just make sure that everyone's on the same page. Judaism follows maternal descent. If your dad is Jewish and your mom is not, you are not Jewish. If your mom is Jewish and your dad is not, you are Jewish. It all goes by the mom in Judaism. That's Jewish law. If Fawcett never converted... But Levine was Jewish. Hamilton would not be Jewish. However, if Hamilton's mom wasn't Jewish, but Levine was Jewish, which would mean that Hamilton certainly wasn't halachically Jewish. His mom wasn't Jewish either. But let's say Rachel Fawcett Levine maintained some kind of Jewish identity because of her original marriage to Levine, even though she wasn't halachically Jewish, she wasn't technically Jewish according to Jewish law, would it be so strange for a cheder, for a Jewish school out in the Caribbean, to accept a child who, although he was not technically speaking Jewish, but whose mom, and perhaps as a child growing up, had some kind of Jewish identity. Would it be so strange and so unlikely for a school, a Jewish school, out in the middle of nowhere, to accept such a child in their, in their school? I don't think so. I don't think it would be so strange. Look around today in the United States of America. How many schools are so particular as to be sure that they don't accept children who are not halachically Jewish even if they have a Jewish identity, um, even if they're not technically halachically Jewish, they won't accept them. You know, many schools won't. But on the other hand, today, many schools absolutely would. So I'm not so sure it's such compelling evidence. It's such a great argument to say by the fact that Hamilton was enrolled in a Jewish school because that there's a, a law that a, a, no, a school is not supposed to teach a non-Jew. 
I'm not sure how compelling evidence that is. How sure are we that the schools in the Caribbean in the 1700s were so particular about this you know, Jewish law, about this halacha, particularly if Hamilton had some kind of Jewish identity, if, even if Rachel Fawcett's convert didn't convert, but if she had maintained some kind of a connection to the Jewish community, I'm not so sure it's so unlikely for the school to have enrolled Hamilton. What's that? Even that long ago, and I would add, especially that long ago, even though, yes, indeed, there were Jews on, in these Caribbean islands, it should be noted, these weren't major bastions of, of Torah life. These were isolated Jewish communities, barely functioning Jewish communities, in far-flung reaches, corners of the world. You know, you have a small, teeny Jewish school and a kid's, I would add, you have a small, flung Jewish school and the kid, a kid comes and they want to pay full tuition. Right? And you're not a particularly pious school. I don't know, maybe you would accept them. But a couple if questions back there. If Levine isn't his father and the mother left him, why would she attend to a Jewish school? Oh, so that's a great, great argument. Poor argues that, Levine, that, that Rachel Fawcett Levine always maintained, till the day she died, maintained her Jewish identity. And she wanted to send her kid to a Jewish school. Now, I would, will tell you, what most scholars say, most scholars argue with that. Most scholars say, you know, and it's, an, it's a fascinating thing. Most scholars will tell you, you know why Hamilton, they say, no, they say it's a Bubba Meister. That's not true. He wasn't Jewish. But you know why he was sent to a Jewish school? Because he was a bastard. And the Christian schools wouldn't have accepted Hamilton. And the only school that would accept him was the Cheder, was the Jewish school. Perwantra argues that, that he, he, he says there are other examples of kids that were passed. That's not true. But that is, it should be noted, that is kind of the star. And that's what most, most scholars will argue. Again, I can't speak to that. I have no idea. I'm not an expert in 18th century you know, Caribbean island Jewish communities. But... But that's what that was the argument. That's another we'll stop I guess this is a natural stopping point for a question. Never. But if anyone wants to pay for my airfare <laughs> I'm sorry? Yes. St. Thomas is is sure. Sure. These were very vibrant Jewish communities. Now, it should be noted, Nevis and St. Croix don't really have functioning Jewish communities anymore, but the cemetery is still there, I think, in one of them, not in the other. So, where does that leave us? So, where does that... That's, that's really, in a nutshell, that's Porwantra's argument. Where does that leave us? So, a couple of thoughts that I think are important to share. As I mentioned, to be Jewish, your mom needs to be Jewish. That is the defining criteria to be Jewish unless you've converted yourself. And the question really hinges on, did Rachel Fawcett convert? Perwantra says yes, which explains a whole bunch of weird historical um, flukes, including Hamilton's general sensitivity and love for the Jewish people. Most scholars, the overwhelming majority of scholars, will say, probably not, your your argument is speculative at best. The truth of the matter is, Using a little bit of Talmudic language, there's very little nafkamina. You know what that means? It really doesn't, it's fairly irrelevant whether or not Hamilton was Jewish. Think about it. If Hamilton was Jewish, what does that mean? Nothing. Because again, would his children be Jewish? No. No. His wife, Eliza Schuyler, was very much not Jewish. So it really doesn't matter functionally. Step one. I, th- I think it's just an important point. It's just, it, it is a curious historical quirk, but it functionally doesn't really have, make any difference. Number two. Well, I, th- this was something I was thinking about. What would a Bayesian, a Jewish court, have said based on Perwantra's argument? In other words, we're, we're in Vegas. We can gamble, right? What do you think? 20%. He says 51%. You know, my personal belief I think it's about a 10% shot based on that evidence. I don't know. But in Judaism, we have ways of adjudicating what's called the suffix, situations of doubt. And the reality is we get these kinds of situations as a rabbi. I get these kinds of situations all the time. Rabbi, my mom likes gefilte fish um, and has this thing for bagels and locks. So maybe is she Jewish? These types of situations, questions of Jewish status, personal status, come up all the time. 
And this is the type of thing, I've been involved in several of these cases, this is the type of thing that a based in a rabbinic panel and tribunal adjudicates. Now, when they go ahead and adjudicate these things, they're not basing it on intuition. It's not, well, what do you think? I think, yeah, you say no. I don't know. What are, you, what are the odds of the Redskins winning this weekend? I don't know. I'd say, you know, that's not what it is. There are actually halachic rules of what's considered permissible evidence to go ahead and say someone is Jewish, not Jewish, or we don't know. And I was just thinking, I'm not on a based in and I'm not issuing any halachic rulings, but based on my limited exposure to these types of situations, if someone came with this evidence, and let's say, you know, you're Hamilton's, whatever, let's say Alexander Hamilton was a, was a woman, and you're his daughter, you're his, you know, kid, and now the question is very relevant, because now it you know, would determine whether you're Jewish or not, I strongly believe, like super duper strongly believe, no Bayesian in the world would say, based on this evidence, you're in, you're part of the tribe. Not only that, I highly doubt they would even say this is really what's called suffolk, a doubt. This is like, really, it's, 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 is it a possibility? Of course it's a possibility. Anyone could be Jewish. But is this real halach, what I'm going to use that word, halachic, which means Jewish law, is this evidence that's admissible in a Bayesian? Again, I'm not issuing any rulings. I'm not an expert. I'm not a professional. I strongly doubt that any Bayesian would accept it. But does that mean he wasn't, you know, as they say in Klape Shmaya Galio, which means in heaven, God, you know, was he actually Jewish? It's a possibility. We'll never know. Falancher went to, and did all this research. He went to Nevis. He went to St. Croix. The records there are, are basically non-existent. They've all been eaten by bugs or destroyed by hurricanes. There's very, very little in, uh, in firsthand account. By the way, the fact that Hamilton's grandson said that Levine was Jewish, the counterpoint to that was his grandson was born 45 years after Hamilton was killed. So this grandson is not necessarily the most reliable piece of evidence. I still believe that Levine was Jewish. I just think that it's, it's a name like Levine in a Jewish area, you're probably Jewish. But there's a third lesson, and I think this is really, really critical. I think to me this is the most important lesson. Let's say Hamilton was indeed Jewish. Perwancher, you're right. Brilliant research. He's Jewish. The question we need to ask ourselves is what, what happened? Why, you know, okay, so he was nice to Jews. No one would argue that he had any kind of Jewish identity. He was not a practicing Jew. What happened? The reality is that question could really be extended in a far broader way. So we mentioned the Jews of the Caribbean. Where were they from? These were Jews who came, you know, maybe, a, you know, a century and a half earlier, you know, as a result of the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is one of the lowest points in Jewish history. We've given many classes on the Spanish Inquisition, the, really, the Spanish expulsion. The expulsion of the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula in August of 1492. It was really one of the most you know, darkest, probably the most dark, darkest period in Jewish history from the destruction of the Second Temple up to the Holocaust is the expulsion from 1492. The Spartac Jewish community was decimated, destroyed. What happened to them? You know, nowadays we always talk about Sephardim and Ashkenazim. If you're familiar with Jewish culture, background, you know, who's, where, what are, just by sheer numbers and influence, what's the larger population, Ashkenazic Jews or Spartac Jews? The answer is overwhelmingly Ashkenazic. The world is at 85, the Jewish population, 85% Ashkenazic, 80, 90, something like that. That wasn't always the case. In 1492, the Spartac world was far more influential and far more numerous than the Ashkenazic world. The expulsion of the Jews from Spain was a devastating blow to world Jewry. Spanish Jewry, really one of three things happened to them. One group of them just decided we're converting and they just became Christians. One group of them, led by the great Rabbi Don Isaac Abarbanel, who was speaking of Secretary of the Treasury, he was the Secretary of the Treasury for Ferdinand and Isabel, but he was also a great and pious, one of the great heroes of Jewish history, leads the Spartac Jewry, Spartac Jewry into the diaspora that would become the Spartac diaspora. They would wander from country to country and settle different regions along the Mediterranean basin for the next half a millennia until they were all kicked out from all those 
functionally the, all those Ara- uh, Arabic countries in 1948, and now they're either in the United States or they're in, you know, or they're in Israel. But they were living in, you know, North Africa, Iran, Iraq, Greece. That was the second group. And then there was the third group. The third group can kind of be divided into two. One, one part of, those, of, the, of that group were, would become Moranos. They were crypto-Jews. They professed to be Christians, but tried to maintain secretly, quietly in their basements, you know, their Jewish identity. And they did that after 1492. Hard to know how many people there were. Half a million? What happened to those Jews? So some of those Jews stayed in Spain. Some of them, as we said, they fled to Holland. Or they fled to far-flung places, places without Jewish communities. What happened to the Moranos and what happened to the bulk of these Jews that ended up in Recife, Brazil? These Jews that ended up in the Caribbean. What happened to them? The answer is they got lost to history. Why? Because Jewish history has proven with almost mathematical precision that if you take Jews out of Jewish communities where there's no Jewish infrastructure, and by that I mean Torah, I mean synagogues, schools, mikvahs, places of Jewish education. If you take Jews out of vibrant Jewish communities and you don't give Jews the opportunity to be engaged in their Judaism and in the Torah, what happens is one of two things. If they are, well, it's really really one thing will always happen. They will assimilate. They'll just get absorbed by that nation if it's a hospitable nation. And that's what happened to the Moranos and the Conversos in, in Spain. They eventually, it, did they maintain their Jewish identity for one generation? Possibly, probably, two generations, maybe three, doubtful, four, gone. By four generations of, of not living in a, in a place where you're able to study your Judaism, practice your Judaism, you cannot be a Jew in a closet. It's not going to work. It needs communal life. It needs communal practice. Similarly, the Jews who went to the Caribbean, although they were out of the, you know, the grip of the vice of the Spanish Inquisition, but the reality is most of these islands did not have particularly vibrant Jewish communities. Was there a hater for the Alexander Hamiltons, the Jewish Alexander Hamiltons? Sure. But was there a yeshiva? Was there a, a, you know, a rabbi, a shochet? Was there Jewish infrastructure? On Nevis, on St. Croix, and in St. Thomas, the answer is no. It didn't exist. That's the story of North American Jewry, even in the United States, up until 1840. The overwhelming majority of them would just kind of assimilate out. Studies have been done recently. It's a remarkable thing. If you check the DNA of Spaniards today, regular people in Spain, 20% of Spain today has Jewish DNA. 20%. How did that happen? The answer is, is within the year 1492, a half a million people, which was a sizable chunk of the population, stay in Spain and kind of just over the generations, kind of just assimilate. That's what's going to happen. And that's really the story of Alexander Hamilton. I don't know if he was Jewish. I tend to doubt it. But even if he was, why didn't he maintain a strong Jewish identity? Why didn't he learn, you know, belong to the Kolel era? Why didn't he go to the Chabad? Why didn't he go ahead and daven three times a day? The answer is, is he, he didn't have a Jewish infrastructure. And whether Alexander Hamilton was Jewish or wasn't, I'll tell you one thing. The kid sitting next to him at the Cheder in Nevis, I highly doubt his kids are Jewish. And that's a powerful, powerful lesson. And I think a very important takeaway from the life of Alexander Hamilton. I'll end with one fascinating quirk that I actually sent an email to launcher just as a postscript, which I just find absolutely remarkable and, I don't know, I'm proud of it to some degree. One of Hamilton's descendants, direct descendant, is Jewish. I know that for an absolute fact. One of Hamilton's descendants lives here in Las Vegas. And I'll protect the innocent. I don't know if they want me to publicize this. But there is a friend, someone I know here in Vegas, very close, you know, to, to the Kolel, who's a convert. Grandmother's maiden name was Hamilton. A direct descendant of Alexander Hamilton. 
I just find that just such a remarkable how the story comes full circle. You know, I don't know, was Hamilton Jewish? Was he not Jewish? He clearly had some kind of Jewish connection and Jewish identity at some point in his life. Did that go for naught? That teacher who was teaching Hamilton, you know, 200 years ago, you know, in that cheder, was that, you know, for no purpose? I don't know, but I can tell you one thing. Hamilton does have a couple of great, 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 great grandchildren who are learning in a cheder today. I want to thank you all for coming. The hour is late. I'll stick around if anyone has any questions. Happy to answer um, any questions. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.